You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Luke says this, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Titled this message uh, for this evening is called The Investment of the Gospel. We'll be honest right up front and say, I struggled through this passage this week. This passage gave me fits all week. It's kind of like wrestling a pig to the ground is what it felt like. Kent Hughes commenting on this passage says this. He says, we may be horrified by the fierceness of this passage. But beneath the terrifying imagery is a solemn fact. Jesus coming into the world forces every person to decide. And the decision is a matter of life and death. The investment of the gospel is a matter of life and death. According to Hughes, Luke teaches us here that the noble son came, and before he went away to acquire his kingship, two things happened. First, he gave a gospel deposit to every one of his followers, and, and second, his enemies attempted to deny his kingship. But through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification, he substantiated his eternal position as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will someday return to those who have invested his investment. There will be unthought of rewards to those who have hidden it, shame. And to those who reject him, death. 
Hughes wraps this up by saying, we are at the final hour. The king is coming. The king is going to return one day. And Revelations reminds us is that when he does return, he will come back on a white horse with his clothes, his robes drenched in the blood of the saints that have been martyred. On his thigh will be a tattoo, a writing that will say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when he comes, he will rule with an iron scepter. It's coming back again. And the only question left upon understanding this is this. Are we investing in the gospel? Are you investing in the gospel or are you hiding the gospel or, or are we rejecting the gospel? You can only be in one of those three places, either receiving and investing at the same time or hiding it or rejecting it. You're in one of those three places as you walk in here tonight and as you listen to this message. This passage is all about the king. It's about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's about King Jesus. It's all about how King Jesus comes and deals with our false expectations, our false understandings, our false beliefs. It's about how he comes and deals with those. It's about, it's about how he comes and makes this deposit or makes this investment of the gospel in each of us. And at the same time, it's all about how he makes enemies. And then it's about how he returns and issues rewards to both the faithful and the unfaithful together. He issues rewards to both camps. And then towards the end, we learn about how he issues judgment on those who are his enemies. It's all about King Jesus. Why? Why? It's all about King Jesus because it's Luke's gospel and that's who it's about. And as Jesus shares this story with the people around him, he wants them to understand who he is because God wants us to be clear. He wants us to have a clear and trustworthy picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he's continuing to do so that we can be faithful investors of the gospel. We'll look at verse 11. Notice how, notice how the king handles false expectations, false beliefs, false thoughts. Luke tells us that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the way that Jesus deals with false expectations in this passage as he tells a story. And he tells us this story to help us to understand the truth. Because he wants us to be set free by the truth. He wants us to be set free from our false expectations, our false beliefs, our false hopes is what he wants more than anything. He doesn't want us to believe lies about him doesn't want us to believe lies about him or about the kingdom that he is establishing. Because to believe lies for us, to believe lies is then to live in bondage. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost and to set the captives free from their bondage, free from their chains. And so Jesus is painting a picture of himself as the king. He's coming to, to combat those false beliefs, those lies that we've bought into. So if you look at this passage, we learn that some people have given into believing some lies, some false things. They have some false expectations about Jesus and his kingdom. 
They're actually expecting something that Jesus is not going to do yet. They're expecting him to establish his kingdom right now, immediately in this place. And I think as the people in our passage experienced what was happening as they followed him and as they surrounded him, as people experienced what was happening in Jesus' ministry over the last few verses, what has happened is they've witnessed and heard some super powerful things, right? When you just think about it for a minute, a few verses back, there's a wealthy dude who thinks he's religious enough to get into heaven. And Jesus basically tells him, hey, go, go, go sell everything you have and, and, and give it away to the poor. And he walks away discouraged. I mean, this was the guy that should have made it into heaven. He was so good. He followed all the rules, didn't break any of the rules. If there was any guy that you would have looked at and thought, hey, that guy's got it going on. Like he's a good church going dude. This was that guy. That guy walks away from Jesus because the cost of discipleship was too high for him. That would get my attention. Kind of in the aftermath of that, Jesus tells his disciples that if they suffer the loss of relationships or, or material belongings or possessions for the sake of the gospel, then they can trust and believe that they will be rewarded eternally, not just in, with the hope of heaven in heaven, but also right here, right now. We, we taste the reward of the Holy Spirit living within us, dwelling within us and leading us, right? So, so he tells his disciples, hey, if you, if, you, uh, if you lose these things, it's okay. You'll get eternal rewards. So Jesus basically tells his disciples that if they, if they suffer by losing relationships and material possessions because of their commitment to Christ, and they can trust that their sacrifices will produce eternal rewards. And then, and then this blind man, right, this poor blind man, it's a blind beggar, comes running to the side of the road basically to see Jesus. He's calling out frantically, if you remember right, from the side of the road, Jesus, I want to see you. And he's blind and he's poor. And this miraculous thing happens. Jesus walks over to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And the dude's like, let me see you. I don't want to see anything else but you. Let me see you. And boom, he's able to see. And because of his testimony of being able to see Jesus right there in that moment, everybody around him starts glorifying God and worshiping him and praising him. This is a picture of what happens when you and I get our prayers answered to see Jesus. And we actually see him authentically. And we walk that out in front of other people. Then other people will also follow us in that example to worship God as well. These are miraculous things that are happening around Jesus. Imagine following him during this time. Imagine what that must have been like to witness these things. And then last week, we looked at that wealthy gangster guy, right? Zacchaeus, short little dude with the stubby legs, went running on ahead, crawled up the tree so he could see Jesus, only to find that the Jesus that he was seeking to see was the Jesus who was seeking to save him. I mean, it's a great story. It's a great story. The wealthiest, most evil man in town gets saved and starts proclaiming the gospel and repenting openly. These are miraculous, powerful things that are happening in this gospel as Luke unfolds it. So I think, I, I think if we put our, our, ourselves in these people's shoes, we might find that it's only natural, right? It's only natural to begin to believe that what we see right in front of us is all there is to the kingdom of God. We might think, man, there's miraculous things happening, and, and like the kingdom's got to be coming like right now. That's what these people thought. 
It's easy sometimes, I think, to falsely expect Jesus to do something right now that in truth he will do in the future. And these people are expecting to see King Jesus establish his kingdom right now, right? And I think as the people in our passage experience this miraculous work of Jesus over the, over the last few verses, they've witnessed and heard these super powerful things. And so as we, as we put ourselves in their shoes, it would be natural for us to think the same thing. Sometimes easy to falsely expect Jesus to do something right now that in truth he's planning to do in the future. But Jesus doesn't want us to give in to false expectations because if we were to do that, then we miss God's timing. And God's timing and God's plans are far beyond our understanding. Like this is the essence of what it actually means to trust in Jesus. Think about this. This is the essence of what it means to truly trust in Jesus as our king. It's to look at him as to say, hey, I expected something different to happen. My expectations were here, but you did this over here instead. And in those moments, that's what it is to actually trust him. It's to trust him even though we don't understand. It is to have faith that what God says he will do and will bring to pass that he will actually do. He will actually bring to pass. That's the essence of what it means to trust Jesus by laying our false expectations and our, our control issues at the, at the foot of the cross of a bleeding and dying Savior. That's the picture of the gospel is for us to trust in him in those moments. And you think about this, the cross of Christ is the, is the greatest investment ever made. It was the greatest investment ever made. And it's bound not to only make followers of Christ, but also to make enemies of Christ. And there was no other investment that has ever been made or ever will be made from the beginning of time to the end of time that will be greater than the cross of Christ. Just think about it. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's going to die brutally. He knows it. When I take a trip, I want to go somewhere sunny and warm and dry, not humid. I want to go somewhere fun. If you told me that, that the next trip that I was going to take was going to lead to my death, I would seek to preserve myself and not go. Most of us would follow the same suit, but Jesus teaches us something different. He's, he is different than we are. He teaches us, teaches us what it looks like to actually lead a life that invests in the gospel. Notice, notice how Jesus comes. Notice how the king comes and makes this deposit in our passage, and then by doing so makes some enemies. It tells us that Jesus begins his parable. And listen, a parable is just simply a story that is, that is meant to convey a spiritual principle or, or a spiritual truth. And so Jesus begins this parable, this story, by telling us that a nobleman who went into a far country to see for himself a kingdom and then return. And then before this nobleman leaves to get the keys to his kingdom, he calls ten of his servants to him. And he gives them ten minas and he says to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. Citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And the truth of this story, the truth of this story as you read this portion, is that Jesus is telling us the 
truth about what, what, what it means to come and begin the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom through his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his imminent return. This story that Jesus is telling was basically told against the backdrop of an evil Jewish king named Herod. Kind of reminds me of the current times that we live in. Like you think of our political landscape surrounding us, you think of the, the world surrounding us right now. There are many evil things happening in the political and social and economical atmosphere around us. We're actually most likely, I think, in America walking into difficult times of suffering. If you claim the name of Christ and if you truly walk out what the scriptures call us to, right? So here, 2,000 years later, we're living in similar times, though, though not as heavy as what they were living in when Jesus tells this story. I love Jesus because he, like, uses current stories, right? Current stories in the background that kind of gets your attention. And the story that he's referencing uh, here in this passage is the story of King Herod. King Herod had recently died and then left his kingdom to his son, and his son was this ruthless and violent king, a ruthless and violent ruler who had murdered 3,000 Jews and then stacked their dead bodies in the center of the worship center. How about that? Like, we don't face that yet here in America. There are believers all across the world who face this kind of persecution, yet we are spoiled rotten. We have a hard time getting to church on time. Just be honest. Like, we got a hard time getting to church on time. We ain't got nothing else to do. We're spoiled. And there are churches all across America that that are dying just to meet with one another because they're lonely and walking alone. But in America, we got spoiled rotten Christians who are like, I'll walk this road alone. I don't need you. Right? Man. Think about this text. Think about the people in this text that Jesus is talking to. 3,000 Jews stacked up dead in the middle of the worship center. Isn't it amazing to think about how that political landscape affects us today, even? All the fear, all the evil, all the hype in our culture. And this ruthless king had ruled his people through fear and violence. And the people who were listening to Jesus hated this dude. He hated him because of his ruthlessness. But Jesus wanted them to know this, and Jesus wants you to know this. Like, he wants you to hear this today. He is a different kind of a king. Jesus is a different kind of a king than you and I have experienced in this life. He's a king who is invested infinitely in his people, like this king in the story that he's telling. And that king invested a single mina in 10 different people. You know what a single mina is? A single mina is three months' wages. Three months' wages. I think about your income need. Think about your income need for a minute, like your monthly income need, your budget. Add a few extra hundred dollars. Add an extra thousand. I don't care. Think about whatever that number is that you need or what you get. And somebody walks up to you and says, hey, here's three months of income. Go invest that wisely. This is an infinite amount of income, of money that this king is investing. It's quite large. Another thing to think about is 
is that the amount that this king invested in each of those 10 people was the same exact amount. He didn't look at them and say, "Uh, you're more worthy, so I'm going to give you a little bit more. You're a little less worthy, so I'm going to give you a little bit more. He just invested the same amount in all of them. And you think about this picture of the cross for a minute. When Jesus died on that cross, he paid the infinite price for you and I. He made the greatest investment of all time, the single most costly investment that could have ever been made. He made that in each of us without any attention to the fact of whether we would accept it or not. He invested the same amount in all of us. He's a different kind of a king for certain. That's what what Luke's gospel is all about, is to be certain about Jesus. To hear these words about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and and, and what he desires of you and to be certain that it's the truth. That it's not just some brainwashed, crazy dude sitting in some cave somewhere scribbling on paper that we now turn to a Bible. He wants us to know and to be certain about Jesus and who he is. Jesus is a different kind of a king. He's not a king who rules through fear. He's not a king who rules through manipulation. He's not a king who rules through extortion. He's not a king who rules like a tyrant. And Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of kings because he's a different kind of a king. He's more than any of us could ever hope for. He's a servant king. He's a loving king. He's a merciful king. He's a gracious king. He's a just king. He is a suffering king. This is the king. This is Jesus. What picture do you have of Jesus? Is your picture distorted? You believe lies about who you think Jesus is? Jesus came and made a deposit of the gospel through the cross and the empty tomb so that all who believe in the message of the gospel could be saved from the penalty and the power of sin. Not just the penalty that you're going to die a death that is separated from God. It's not just that penalty, but it's also the power now. When you place your faith and your trust in Jesus and you recognize the depth of your sin and the depth of your brokenness, and you come to a place that you're at the end of yourself and you've tried thousands of things to change and you recognize that you can't fix yourself because you are broken. So you need perfection to fix what is broken because broken don't fix broken, right? You need Jesus. And when you come to that place and you realize that, then what happens is Jesus not only saves you from the penalty of your sin, which is certain death and certain separation from all that is good. He doesn't just save you from that. He also saves you from the power of your sin now. He radically changes you. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He pours his spirit into you. It's like a refreshing drink of water. Changes your life radically. Think about this picture of living in a desert and being thirsty. Someone comes to you finally and gives you a fresh drink of water. And you go, no, I want to keep drinking motor oil. Well, that would be stupid, right? None of us would do that, right? But actually, this is what many of us do. So we keep going back to those filthy places of drinking rather than receiving a fresh investment and drink of the gospel. This is what Jesus does. He saves us from the penalty and the power of sin so that we can become disciples who wisely invest the gospel in others. 
so that there can be a harvest of righteousness in the souls of others who become saved and set free and then adopted into the family of the church by the message of the cross. This is the church on display. This is what the king does in his kingdom as he establishes it. As Jesus made this investment of the gospel, made some followers, he also made some enemies, right? Those enemies were responsible for his death at the cross. When you think about who those enemies were, who were those enemies? Those enemies that beat Jesus with whips, those enemies that crushed a crown of thorns on his head, those enemies that beat him with rods, those enemies that threw him to the ground, those enemies that nailed his hands and feet to a wooden instrument of torture, those enemies who lifted him up in the air on that cross, naked, shamefully in front of everyone, those, those enemies that shoved that spear into his side and drained him of his blood, those enemies that ruthlessly murdered him that day, those hands that did that to Jesus were you and I. It was you and I that did that. The reason that Christ came and walked this road to Jerusalem was so that he could bear the weight and the shame and the penalty and the guilt of our sin at that cross. And so the reality is that we are the ones that nailed him to that cross. He went to that cross even though you and I lived as his enemies, dead in our sin. Well, he went to the cross to invest the greatest investment ever made. This kind of investment is certain to carry the promise of rewards though, isn't it? Certain, certain to carry the promise of rewards. Notice how the king rewards those who have been faithful, verses 15 through 19, Jesus continues his story about the king who made this huge investment in some people before leaving to secure his kingdom. And he tells us that when he returns, he calls his servants to check on how well they've done at reinvesting the investment he made in them. Jesus says that one person came and said this. One person comes and says, Lord, your mina has made you ten minas more. And to this person, the king said, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful and in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Another person comes, says, hey, Lord, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And to this person, the king said, you are to be over five cities picture that we get here is that when King Jesus returns, he will give rewards to people who've not only received the investment of the gospel from him, but have also then reinvested the gospel in others. And because of their reinvestment then have produced gospel fruit in other people. Faithfulness and reward is a tricky subject, though, isn't it? You think about this for a minute. Faithfulness and reward is a tricky subject because the reality of true faithfulness has everything to do with what motivates you. What is it that motivates you? Good cup of coffee motivates me to get up in the morning. Thankful for the coffee we had at men's retreat because it got me up. I don't know what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. When it comes to faithfulness and reward, it's the same. What motivates you? <clears throat> picture I get from this portion of Scripture is a picture of stewardship. And stewardship is tied to the principle of motivation. 
When you think about this picture of stewardship, it's a picture of understanding where what we have actually came from in the first place. Like the things that you have, the things that you possess, the things that have been given to you, you and I must understand who actually owns it and where it came from in the first place. These servants were simply that, servants of the king. You and I, our problem is that we wind up getting things and we become servants of those things. We try to make those things servants to us to fulfill our pleasures, to fulfill our longings, to, to make us healthy again. And what we find is that those inanimate objects or those people, a lot of times we do this with people, those things become our masters. And they're poor masters because they're broken. But broken things don't master very well. That's why we need the master, Jesus. He's a good master because he's perfect, right? These servants were simply that. They were servants of the king. They were not servants of what they had. They were servants of the king. And when they came to the king, they didn't say this. They didn't say, hey, look at all my hard work. They didn't say, hey, hey, look at, look at what I did or look at how what I invested returned this much profit margin. Or look at how much more I'm investing than everybody else is investing. Didn't say any of that. Instead, they saw themselves as servants of the king who were called to steward what belonged to the king rightfully and had been invested in them. They said, Lord, your mina has made more minas. Language is important when we look at the scriptures. Your mina has made more minas. They didn't take credit for the growth. But instead, they recognized that the power for the growth was in the, the true owner of the mina and in the mina itself. That's where the power lie. That's where the power was at for the growth, was in the mina and the owner of the mina. And you think about the gospel. If the mina for us is like the gospel which has been invested, the gospel that King Jesus invests in each and every one of us is powerful in itself. The gospel is the power for salvation. Powerful in itself for growth and holiness and righteousness. Because the power of the gospel, listen, the power of the gospel originates in the power of the owner of that gospel. You and I don't own that gospel. Jesus owns that gospel. Our Father in heaven owns it. And the scriptures inform us that all power resides with God. So the power in the gospel is actually the power of God at work. Our job is to be faithful with the gospel that has been invested in each of us. Some of the common ways that we become unfaithful, think about this for a minute, there are common ways that we become unfaithful with the investment of the gospel. Sometimes we begin to think that the gospel is all about us rather than all about the king. We think it's all about us rather than being all about the king who brings us the gospel. You think about it, when you open the scriptures, why do you open the scriptures? Do you open the scriptures because you're looking for an answer for you? Because you think that you are the star of the show in the scriptures? And I hate to crush us a little bit, but the reality is you and I, we are not the stars. We're the bad guys, okay? That's the reality. Jesus is the king. He is the star of the show. All throughout scriptures, it's all about him. It's not about you and I. Sure, there are passages of Scripture, entire books of Scripture, which help us to understand how we should live. But it's not just a great moral book about how we should live more moralistically because we're going to biff that. The reality is it's a book about King Jesus 
and how we should live a life that brings honor and glory to him because it's about him and not about you and I. Sometimes we become unfaithful in the gospel when we think that it's all about us rather than thinking it's all about Jesus. We become unfaithful with the gospel sometimes when we give in to sin. Okay? When we give in to sin, whether, that, whether that's just something as seemingly small as discontentment and grumbling and whining and complaining to something as seemingly large as gossip and slander or sexual sin. It doesn't really matter what kind of sin it is. Sin causes us to be unfaithful with the gospel. What the king calls us to in this passage is faithfulness with the gospel. He's calling us to be faithful with the gospel that he has invested in us. And to those who are faithful with his investment, then great reward is in store. But to those who've been unfaithful with the investment of the gospel by hiding the gospel in their own little personal closet of conservative and self-protective culture, then shame becomes their reward. Shame becomes their reward. Look at how the king returns and rewards those who have been unfaithful. Verses 20 through 26, Jesus tells us that another person comes to the king and says this, says, Lord, here is your meaning which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Did you notice the lie that this man believed in this passage about the king? What lies have you believed about Jesus that just aren't true that the Holy Spirit needs to set you free from right now in these moments? When you think about who God is, what picture do you have in your head? Is it that person who used and abused you and hurt you? Is it your father growing up who didn't discipline you very well? What lies has Satan deposited deep inside of you to believe about your Father in heaven or about Jesus the King that you need to be set free from tonight? I don't know what those are because I don't know your heart. But I know this, that when Jesus' word is open and when this confronts us, then the Spirit of God wants to free us from the lies that we have believed. They're festering up from deep inside, right? Notice the lie that this person believes about his king. The king king has actually made this huge investment in him and then went away and then has now returned to see what his investment has actually reaped or produced. But this, this person is deceived. This person has a deceived picture of the king and so he lives in fear. That's what happens when you are deceived. You live in fear. You live in fear of what other people think of you. You live in fear of what other people could do to you. You live in fear of what other people say about you. You live in fear, ultimately, of God and what he actually thinks of you because you have a deceived picture of who Jesus is. You believe lies, and I don't want that, and neither does God. I want you to be set free from that. The picture that many of us walk in here tonight of God with, built on lies. We need to be set free from that. God does not want us to live in fear. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures are clear that if we have believed upon Christ, then we, we are not to be given over to a spirit of fear which leads us back into slavery. We are to be given over and controlled by a spirit of adoption which is sonship, to be made children of God, no longer enemies of God, no reason to fear anymore. But now we can come into the presence of God with all of our brokenness, all of our mess, all of our sin, all of our mistakes, we come into his presence and we can say, hey, daddy, I'm your kid and I messed it up again. I need you to fix me. 
So we can come to him with that spirit of sonship now, and we can cry out what the scriptures say, Abba, Father, which is to simply say in one of the, the greatest forms of endearment to a father is to say, Daddy, Daddy. There are some of you in this room that have a hard time calling your dad, Daddy which means you have an even harder time of looking at the Father in heaven and calling him Daddy because you have a hard time seeing a loving Father because of the lies that you have believed and because of the deception that is buried deep within your heart. Sometimes that happens because of all the sin that has happened against you, people that have hurt you. Sometimes that happens because of all the sin that you've lived in. Your heart has become hardened against God and his love for you. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is that God loves you. He is a loving king. He's a gracious king. He's a merciful king. He's a good king. He is a good father who has made a vast investment in you. What will you do with that investment? If you hide it, there's a reward for you. I don't want you to hide it. Jesus tells us that the king rewards this unfaithful person with shame when he says, hey, hey, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. I mean, that's harsh, right? Like we always get this picture of Jesus, like blue eyes, flowing blonde hair, sitting down with children on his lap, drinking a little cool glass of water. Sometimes like a picture of like, yo, Jesus is my homeboy, you know? We get this funny picture of Jesus that way. Man, when I think of Jesus, I think of this guy who worked out there with his hands, like he worked with wood, like he was a muscular dude, right? He's a buff dude. He's a big guy, and I think that when he preached, sometimes he got loud, and especially this one, you wicked servant. Those are some pretty harsh words to put together. Notice the, the question. You knew? You knew that I was a severe man, he says. You knew that I was a severe man, huh? Taking what I do not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Like, notice the sarcasm in Jesus' question as he asks this, right? Notice that. Look at the following question. Why did you not put my money in the bank then? Like you knew all these things about me, you wicked person. You knew all these things. Why did you put my money in the bank so that somebody could actually get a return on it instead of hiding it? If you really believe this about me, why didn't you give what I had invested in you to someone else who could reinvest it for a return? Your wickedness is obvious. You ever have that moment where the wickedness of your heart becomes obvious to you? Have you ever had that moment? Like, if you haven't had that moment, I'm praying right now as I preach that you have that moment. <laughs> we all need to continue having that moment. As I studied this, I realized over and over again the wickedness deep within my heart. Specifically for the end of this passage when he says, slaughter him in front of me. We'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, you give that word to a preacher, right, who struggles in his flesh like anybody else? Because I ain't perfect, because I ain't Jesus. That's not my name, right? My name's not Jesus, so thank God you didn't expect perfection from me. You give me that word, slaughtered them in front of me? Oh, man, you want to know the wicked things that bubble up out of my heart? I recognize my own wickedness in those moments. It broke me again, reminded me of how much I am in desperate need of Jesus. I may not run out to the strip clubs anymore, 
I not, may not be clicking on pornography anymore. I, I may not be out there having extramarital affairs anymore. I may not be out there getting trashed anymore. I may not be out there doing drugs anymore like I used to. But I can tell you, there's still wickedness deep down inside of my heart that Jesus has got to do work with. In the midst of this passage, I had that moment. This man had that moment. Your wickedness is obvious. Can you imagine that moment for him? That to, to realize that even though you thought you were doing the right thing by conserving what you had, you in fact were being unfaithful and not just unfaithful, but being wicked. You're being wicked because of your attempt to not just preserve what had been invested in you, but actually to preserve yourself. That's what this guy was doing, was trying to preserve himself against his false picture of this king. He really believed that that's who his king was. And he was trying to preserve himself. How much time and effort do you spend trying to preserve what you have or trying to preserve yourself all because of the fear that is rooted deep down inside of you because of deception and lies? Man, the king's response to this person in this passage King's response to his unfaithfulness was to reward him with shame by taking away what he had invested in him and then gave it to someone else that had been found faithful with the investment that was invested in him, right? And some people are totally and absolutely and utter shocked by this in our passage. Verse 25, they say this. They're like, hey, Lord, he's already got 10 minutes. Hello! <laughs> right? He's already got 10 minutes. What do you mean give it to him? Keen says this, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you this, everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Plain English, the reward for unfaithfulness is that we lose what has been invested in us. How many times have you heard the gospel? How many times have you heard the gospel? What have you done with it? Have you received the investment? Have you rejected the investment? Are you hiding that investment? How many times have you heard of this great king who loves you and gave himself for you? Are you receiving it? Are you rejecting it? Are you trying to hide it or hide from it? And does this mean that for those of us who have believed the gospel, does this mean we lose our salvation? I don't think so. I don't think that that's what this passage is about anyways. I don't think this is about whether you lose it or whether you don't in terms of salvation. I just think that when we've been unfaithful with the gospel that has been planted within each of us, we then lose the ability to invest the gospel in others. And I think we lose the ability to reap the benefits or rewards of seeing it take root in others. And I think we lose the benefit and reward of responsibility in heaven if we're unfaithful with the gospel. It's as though this person sees the gospel as mere fire insurance only. Keep them out of hell. Sees as mere fire insurance only rather than a priceless gift that has been invested in him to be invested in others so that they can receive a reward in proportion to the level of investment. And rewards are proportionate to our faithfulness. Now imagine, imagine the person who doesn't receive the investment of the gospel at all. Imagine that person. Imagine the person who in fact continues to live as an enemy of God, who continues to live apart from God, who continues to stiff arm and reject the gospel, who continues to plug their ears to the gospel. That kind of person 
receives a terrifying reward because it's judgment. Jesus says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I'm reading this and I'm like, Are you kidding? What? Slaughter them? Kill them? Like, slaughter them right here in front of me? You imagine the backroom chatter after Jesus preaches that? Right? Social media posts after Jesus preaches this. Can't believe what Jesus just said. He said he's going to slaughter a bunch of people. (laughs) You imagine all the families gathered for dinner in their homes afterwards, all the gossip and slander that took place right there. Did you hear what Jesus said? (laughs) I don't feel so bad. I don't feel so bad anymore when I realize Jesus said some really outlandish things. And the outlandish things that he said, got him murdered at the cross. For those of you that are here who follow Christ, who trust in Christ, who have faced suffering and hardship on account of your faith, who have had people say outlandish things about you, who have had people stiff-arm you, walk away from you, hurt you because of your faith, Christ went much further than we did. And we've been warned that we'll face much suffering for following him, right? terrifying to read this, but it's the truth. It's the truth, right? It's the truth because when Jesus returns, he is returning to judge the living and the dead. It's coming to judge the living and the dead in accordance with what they did with the gospel. It's why I started out by saying the investment of the gospel is important because it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life. It's a serious topic. Think with me for a minute. Like if you or I reject Christ's rule and reign over us as the loving and the gracious and the merciful and and the truthful and the generous king that he is, then what is left for him to do if we reject him? What is left for him? We leave him no other recourse. Isn't God a just God too? Right? You think of the horrible things that you've seen people do or say, and you think, you remember, the pastor says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and you, and you, you, you find rest and hope in the solace that those evil, horrible things that have happened, those evil people, they will pay their price, right? It's easy when we point the finger at others. But you and I have got to remember that we are just as wicked and just as evil as any other person. So if God comes back and you and I have not received the investment of the gospel, we only have room for his justice. And isn't God's judgment and wrath just the outcome or the outflow of his justice for people who have continued to live as his enemies? It's a heavy picture. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be slaughtered. Anybody else want to be slaughtered? Want to, want to sign up for the slaughter line? No! No, I don't think any of us in here wants to get slaughtered, right? I don't want to get slaughtered. I don't want to live apart from Christ. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be the, the guy who, uh, who is separated from God who loves me. I don't want to be separated from the God who has generously offered this investment of the gospel of the cross of Christ. I don't want to be the guy who, who has rejected God's love. 
love. I don't want to be that guy who became the object of God's judgment and wrath. I want to be the guy who received God's investment of the gospel. That's what I want for you. I want us to be people who have received God's investment of the gospel as objects of his love. And then, and then we turned around and gave everything that we possibly could to reinvest the gospel in others. So that when the kingdom of God is completely established, we are a part of that kingdom as sons and daughters of God who are loved by God. We think about this. And if you are sitting here and you really have gotten the picture of the cross of Christ, if you've really got that picture, if you really have seen the wickedness and the deception deep within your heart, if you really have seen the brokenness of your life, if you really are taking a cold, hard look at the sin which is inside of you, and you've really come to that place where you see Jesus on that cross in your place, it should have been you and I on that cross paying that price, but he went there willingly for you and I. If we've caught that picture and we've trusted in Christ, then what could stop you from wanting to share that with us? others. What, what, what would stop you from wanting to reinvest that in others unless you have a false picture of who Jesus is? It's a matter of life and death. The question remains for us, are we investing in the gospel? Are we hiding the gospel or are we rejecting the gospel? The choice is really yours. The choice of receiving the investment of the gospel is yours. The choice of investing in the gospel is yours. The choice of whether or not to hide the gospel or hide from the gospel is yours. The choice of rejecting the gospel is yours. What will you do with this investment of the gospel? Let me pray as our music team comes forward. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to preach this message this evening. And I pray that you would apply this to our hearts and help us to take what you have invested and, uh, and reinvest. I pray for any who are here tonight who do not know you. And I pray, God, that you would draw them to you this evening. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. As we close tonight, we'll close as we usually do by participating in a communion meal together. Uh, the way that we do this is that if you're here and you're a believer and you trusted in Christ, then we invite you to engage in this meal. This is a remembrance of Christ's body and blood broken and poured out on your behalf. So if you trust in him and you're living your life wholeheartedly for him and seeking to follow him and seeking him to change your life, then by all means come and partake in this meal joyfully, right? If you're here and you don't know Christ, don't, don't come and partake in this meal because it would be just a mindless religious activity. We don't buy into mindless religious activities here, but instead if you're here and your heart has been struck by this passage or been struck by anything that I've preached, I just invite you to the front. There will be a few of us near the front to pray with you. It could help you learn what it means to follow Christ for the first time. And then once you're done with that, then go and take communion for the first time as a believer, as someone who is part of the family. So I just ask that you do that. Um, there will also be some of us here to pray with you. Our worship team will lead us into worship, and we'll close that way. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.